Hey there, welcome back. I'm glad to be back. I'm Shayna, your host. If you follow me on Instagram, you know I took a bit of a sabbatical. Life got busy and my mental health was in a bad spot, but I'm happy to report that I am feeling better. So sorry to leave y'all hanging for so long. I may be doing a mini episode later to make it up to y'all. Anyway, this week I will be telling you the story of five men who went missing in Yuba County, California, and all were found except one. This is the story of the Yuba County Five. County Five were five men from Yuba City, California that went missing. Their names were Gary Mathias, Jack Hute, William Sterling, Jack Madruga, and Theodore Wire. They were commonly referred to as the boys, even though they were between the ages of 24 and 32. They all lived with their parents still, and they regularly hung out together. Their parents said they loved to play sports or watch it. They liked to play basketball and were actually on the Gateway Gators team through a local organization that catered to the mentally disabled. All five of them had their own intellectual disabilities or psychiatric disorders. Some could work outside jobs, but others couldn't. The one that stuck out a bit was Gary Mathias, though. Gary was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia after being psychologically discharged from the military after a drug-related incident. Gary had been on medication for his condition since being out of the military, and his dad said that if he didn't take it, he would go haywire. He had actually improved over time, though, and was able to work in his stepfather's gardening business. Jack Hute and William Sterling had slight intellectual disabilities. Jack Madruga and Theodore Wire were just what they referred to as slow learners back then, and were both army vets like Gary. Although the other four were a tad older than Gary, they were pretty close friends. So on February 24th of 1978, Gary and the other four men went to Chico, California for a UC Davis game, which is about an hour from their home. Jack Madruga had a 1969 Mercury Montego, so they all hopped into his car and made that drive to watch the game. The UC Davis game was playing at Chico State Campus. After the Davis team won, all five men got back into the 69 Montego and drove a short distance from the campus to Bears Market, which was located in downtown Chico. They bought some snacks and soda and a milk carton of drink. It was close to the 10 p.m. closing time because the clerk working that night resented such a large group coming in so late because it delayed the closing process for her. After leaving Bears, the men were supposed to head back home. So, Taking in mind that they had stopped at the store to grab snacks and drinks, on average it takes about 10 minutes to grab what you need and check out, and they had stopped close to 10 p.m. That would put them getting home around 11 p.m. or shortly thereafter, with it being an hour drive. 
So when the five men didn't come home and the early morning hours started creeping up, their parents began to worry. So they contacted police to make them aware of the men missing. According to their parents, this was completely uncharacteristic for them. They weren't the type to stay out late or make spontaneous plans. They were more homebodies than anything else, and they had a game of their own the next day, so they had planned on going straight home to rest up for that. So where were they, and why weren't they home? Police in Butte and Yuba counties began to search the route that they had taken to Chico. Maybe they had gotten stranded or in an accident or something. They found no trace of them at all. A few days later, a tip came in from a ranger out at Plumas National Forest. Plumas National Forest is located at the northern terminus of Sierra Nevada, located in northern California. The ranger had said that he had seen the Montego parked along Oroville Quincy Road in the forest on February 25th. At the time, he had not considered it significant since many residents often drove up that road into the Sierra Nevada on winter weekends to go cross-country skiing on the extensive trail system. But after he read the missing persons bulletin, he recognized the car and led deputies to it on February 28th. The discovery of the car was super concerning. There was evidence that the men had been in the car between stopping at the Bears Market in Chico to where the car was found. Empty snack wrappers and soda cans along with the milk carton were still in the car. They even found a neatly folded map of California on the seat of the Montego. But where had the five men gone in such cold weather with four to six feet of snow? And let's talk about the fact that that car, like the Montego, that they were driving, it wasn't built to be able to navigate through four foot of snow and much less six foot. A few things other than the fact that the men were gone that raised more concerns was the location of the vehicle. It was about 70 miles from Chico and far off any direct route to Yuba City. Another thing was that the men had left wearing light coats and their parents weren't even remotely sure as to why they would be going out of their way up a winding dirt road, up a mountain in a remote forest and not bring extra clothes or let alone let anyone know that they were going that way. Not to mention their very own basketball game that they had been so excited about, as I mentioned earlier. Jack Madruga's parents even said that he did not like cold weather and had never been up in the mountains before. And William Sterling's dad said that he had taken him up there once for a fishing trip near where the car was, but that the young man didn't like it and stayed home when his father would take more trips up there later. Police were also confused. Why did they leave the car? They had made it to just 4,400 foot in elevation, but about where the snow line starts and just short of where the road closes for the winter. The car was also stuck in some snow drift and there was evidence of the tires being spun. They had noticed that the keys were gone, which made them think that maybe something was wrong with the car and they went to find help. But when the police hotwired the car, it started right up and it even had a quarter tank of gas, which is bizarre. They also noticed that the undercarriage of the car wasn't beat up 
at all. Like there was no scrapes, there was no gouges or dents, not even on the low-hanging muffler. They found this odd because of how low the vehicle sat. Like I said earlier, like that's not a car that's meant to like travel in like deep snow. So with the condition of the road they were traveling, it, it was almost impossible. So with all those ruts and potholes and what have you, you either had to know the road extremely well or that car wasn't technically driven up there. Jack Madruga's family said that he would have never let someone drive it either. So more confusion set in. They also noticed that the car had been unlocked and the window had been rolled down. Police did a lot, or they got a lot of tips and did a lot of searching for these men. And these tips were like people saying that they had seen them in various parts of California and even in the country um, after they left Chico's. So they left Chico's closer to 10. So they were, there were people calling in saying that they had seen them after 10 p.m. that night. Most of these tips were rolled out, though, but there were two that stood out to police. A man from Sacramento, California named Joseph Scons, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right either, um, had told police that he had wound up staying in his truck the night of February 24th and 25th near where the Montego was found. Apparently, he had driven up there to a cabin he had so he could check on a snowpack prior to the weekend before his family ski trip and he had gotten stuck about 150 feet up the road around 5 30 p.m and if that weren't bad enough in the midst of him trying to get his car unstuck he realized that he was experiencing early signs of a heart attack and got back in and kept the engine going to provide heat around six hours into being stuck on that road lying in his car and experiencing severe pain he saw headlights behind him he recalled looking back at the vehicle and seeing a group of people surrounding it, one of which he thought looked like a woman holding a baby. He tried to call out to them for help, but when he did, they shut their headlights off. After the headlights went off, he then saw more light that looked like it was coming from flashlights, but when he called out to them again, they too went off. Joseph also said that he recalled a pickup truck parking about 20 feet behind him for a brief period, but then took off up the road. He said that he couldn't swear to that because at this point in time, he was pretty delirious from the pain he was in. Joseph's car eventually ran out of gas. And by the time the pain had subsided and he was able to make it to the lodge about eight miles away, and he had someone take him home. They passed the Montego on the way out. Doctors did confirm later that he had indeed suffered a mild heart attack. Theodore's mom did say that it wasn't like her son to ignore pleas for help. If he had been there, which had to have made this all the more concerning for the family. She even said that she recalled him and William helping someone they knew make it to the hospital due to overdosing on Valium. I will be right back after this short break. Okay, so 
The other tip that police got and took seriously was a woman who was a clerk at a store in Brownsville, which was about 30 miles from the spot that the car had been abandoned. They very well could have made it there if they had kept going. The woman had said that she had seen four of the men come into the store two days after their dear disappearance. She said she had recognized them off of the flyers that had been put out that had the $1,215 reward for any information on where the men were. The store owner cooperated her story. She said she identified the men immediately as out-of-towners, basically because of their big eyes and facial expressions. Two of the men she identified were Jack Hute and William Sterling, and she had said that they were in the phone booth while the other two went inside. Police had deemed her a credible witness. The rest of the information given came from the store owner. He had told police that two men, who he identified as Jack Hute and Theodore Wire, had come into the store and bought burritos, chocolate milk, and soft drinks. Wire's brother had told the Los Angeles Times that it sounded like him because he would eat anything he'd get his hands on and that he was normally in the company of Hute, but that them driving to Brownsville in apparent ignorance of their game in a completely different vehicle was out of character. However, Hute's brother said that it wasn't like him to use a phone. In fact, Jack hated speaking on the phone so much, it was common for his brother to handle phone calls for him at home with the group of boys. Months passed and there was no progress on the case, not until June, when the snow on the mountains began to melt away. It was motorcyclists that helped make a break in the case. They were traveling up the mountain to a trailer that was maintained by the Forest Services, which was about 19 miles off the road where the abandoned car was found. When they approached the trailer, they noticed that one of the windows had been broken. As they got closer to the trailer and opened the door, they were overcome by a really foul smell, one that you can never forget, the smell of decomposition. On the bed lay the body of wire and he was wrapped in eight sheets. The case had been broken wide open. An investigation started and a search team was dispatched. They searched the distance between where the car had been abandoned and the trailer where the motorcyclist had found Warner's body. A day after the search began, Madruga and Sterling's bodies were found 11 miles from where the car was found, and they had appeared to have died from exposure to freezing temperatures. It was speculated that one of the men may have succumbed to the desire to sleep, and hypothermia sets in quicker if you fall asleep, the other refusing to leave his side and later meeting the same fate, which is so heartbreaking, dedicating like yourself to somebody to not leave your friend behind but also because if he had gone to find help maybe it wouldn't have resulted in all of this i was so confused as to why they they were out there and even after researching so much of this case i'm still left with a lot of questions and i'm sure that a lot of people still had more questions too moving on two days later Hute's own father found his backbone under a manzanita bush, I think that's what that's called, two miles northeast of the trailer. 
There wasn't much left of him by that point. Apparently, wild animals had gotten to him. Clothes and shoes found in the area helped conclude that it was Hute. Police did later happen upon a skull and through dental records were able to officially identify him. Hute's death was also attributed to hypothermia. Meanwhile, they were all still searching for the last man missing, Gary Mathias. In the area northwest of the trailer, searchers had found three Forest Service blankets about a quarter mile away and a rusted flashlight. They couldn't be positive how long they had been there. Since Matthias presumably had been off of his medication, they had flyers distributed to mental, mental institutions around California. But nothing came of that. So as of this point, Matthias was still a missing person. Here's where things get a little weird. So just listen. Where's was the first to be found? Remember? So he was found on the bed in the trailer, wrapped in eight sheets from head to toe. His death was the most mysterious, and I'm about to tell you why. So the nasty details first. Autopsy showed that he had died of a combination of starvation and hypothermia. He had lost nearly half of his 200 pounds, and his beard growth indicated that he had lived as long as 13 weeks weeks guys 13 freaking weeks from the time he had last shaved his feet were extremely frostbitten like almost to the point of gangrene side note all my years of true crime obsession i had no idea that they determined prolonged life by the growth of body hair and or facial hair so there you go learn something new every day anyway in the way of other things found in the trailer were some of Ware's personal effects. Like on the bedside table, they found his wallet, which still had cash in it, a nickel ring that had Ted engraved on it, assuming it's short for Theodore, and a gold necklace he had worn. However, they found a gold watch that was missing its crystal that his family said did not belong to him. They also found a a partially melted candle, which I'm assuming he was at some point using for light, Ware was wearing a Valor shirt and some lightweight pants, but they were unable to locate his shoes, which I found odd, but some theorized that maybe Matthias had used Ware's shoes due to his feet being swollen. This is just speculation though, and only theorized due to them finding Matthias' shoes Matthias shoes in the trailer. This is where the weird stuff is. What police found most confusing is how Ware never tried to heat the trailer. The trailer had a fireplace, so if he had gotten wood, he could have used the wood to feed the fire, and with the books that were in the trailer, he could have used the pages for kindling. There was also heavy forestry clothing that they could have used to stay warm also, and that struck everyone as odd. Because if they hadn't lit the fire, the clothes definitely could have helped a ton. Even more, they found a dozen sea ration cans from a storage shed outside that had been opened and emptied. But a locker in the same shed had never been opened, 
and inside that locker was enough dehydrated food to last all five men a year if they had needed it. There was also another shed nearby that held a butane tank, and if they had opened the valve, they could have supplied heat to the trailer. The only thing that they could even summon off this was that the actions taken were consistent with what Ware's family had described as a lack of common sense, stating that there was one time that he had laid in his bed while the ceiling above him was in flames and they had to drag him out. And his reasoning behind this was that he feared he would miss work the next day if he left his bed. It also seemed that Wares hadn't been alone in the trailer, as some things indicated that Matthias was there with him at some point and that maybe even Hugh had been there. As mentioned, police had found Matthias' shoes in the trailer, not to mention that the sea ration cans were open with a P-38 can opener, and that's something used in the military, which only Madruga and Matthias would be familiar with using. Police did later find out that Matthias had a friend in Forbestown and said that there was a chance that he had convinced the men to drive there to visit. But why so late? And again, why not tell someone? Have you noticed how there has been no mention of Matthias' body being found? That's because he has not been found. They searched for months on end for him. Clues were scarce. Even the flyers brought no result of him. Police still don't know what would cause these men to seemingly, out of nowhere, go to a place they were not familiar with without telling someone, especially with their history of being homebodies. And why did they ignore or avoid Scone? Even if Scone had been in the middle of a medical emergency that could have saved their lives, I also wonder where the apparent woman holding a baby had gone. Was there really a woman with a baby? Where would she have come from and why would she have been with the men? This case seems so far off to me. Matthias has been missing for 43 years, 2 months, and 23 days today. All of their parents passed on not having the answers to some of these questions. Though some closure was met when the bodies are found, full closure would never happen for these families. Matthias is still considered a missing person. None of it makes sense. Five men just disappear. Four are found dead and one is still missing. Such a bizarre case. But that's all I have for today. Until next time, stay safe, friends. Thank you for tuning in this week. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit that subscribe or follow button and tune in every Monday for a new episode. Episode suggestions can be sent to criminalbeautypod at gmail.com. You can find me on Facebook at criminalbeauty20 and on Instagram at criminalbeautypod.